how can we help serve humanity? How can we help serve our customers? Mm. And we will work with whoever is willing to serve, whatever you call yourself. Mm -hmm. right? So our crusade is against injustice. Our crusade is not against a group of people that happen to call themselves something that starts right. to be that some of them are good, some of them maybe are not so good, but the same thing can be said about people in crypto. Some of them are good, some of the people are not right. so good. What's up, guys? How's it going? My name is Gray, and you're listening to the Gray App Podcast. I'm recording this in an Uber in Cape Town right now. It's a chilly morning on a Wednesday. So this actually episode is by far uh, actually one of my favorite podcasts I've ever recorded. But hey, welcome to the Gray App Podcast, where you get lessons for survival in the 21st century. And today we have uh, Frazam Esani, who is the CEO and co-founder of Valor.com. Um, Valor is a platform that bridges the gap between our traditional financial system and the new world of cryptocurrencies. Uh, Frazam was previously the blockchain lead at Rand Merchant Bank and the first Rand Group and was inaugural chairperson of the South African Financial Blockchain Consortium. Um, he previously worked at McKinsey & Company in Johannesburg, Deloitte Consulting in San Francisco, and Baha'i World Center in Haifa, and the United Nations in Nairobi, Kenya. He studied economics at the University of California, Berkeley. So we covered a whole range of subjects here from you know economics, uh, his background. Uh, we even discussed spirituality because he belongs to the, he subscribes to the Baha'i faith and we talk a little bit about that. So we really covered a lot which I thought of splitting this episode into two different episodes but then I realized that it's just much better to give you the whole thing and then uh, you consume it in one go. So if you want to hit up Frazam you can definitely do that on Twitter at Fazam, I think if you just type Fazam Isan, you should be able to find him over there. And you can check out the platform valor.com, especially if you're in South Africa, if you're listening from my website. Otherwise, you can also listen to the Grey F podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcast, Spotify, SoundCloud, whatever platform that you're comfortable with. Uh, so that is it for me, guys. I'll continue my trip right now. Go ahead and enjoy my conversation with Frazam. Thank you. Great. So for a lot of people who didn't watch our last interview, uh, could you introduce yourself again, just so sure. they know who, who we're turning to? Sure. So my name is Farzam Asani. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Valor.com, V-A-L-R.com, as you can see behind me. Grew up in Kenya. Mm -hmm. I'm originally from Iran. Was born in Los Angeles. What passport do you have? Uh, I've got a U.S. passport. A U.S. passport? Yeah, I've got a U.S. Wow. passport. Wow, like a man. <laughs> <laughs> Most of my life, I, was, I grew up in Kenya, my childhood, mm. until 18. And um, then after that, I went and I was a gardener for a year mm. in Israel at the Baha'i World Center. The Baha'i faith is, is, is really core to my life. We can talk about that as well and how okay. that's influenced me. And after that, I studied at UC Berkeley in California, uh, economics. So at what age were you uh, doing gardening? In? At 18. 18? Yeah. Okay, yeah, wow. Just after high school. I did some gardening as well at, at around 8, 17. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> pretty good. Getting it's pretty your hands good. in the soil. Exactly. Um, it was a wonderful experience, actually. And then, um, so studied economics at mm. UC Berkeley, started working in San Francisco at Deloitte Consulting, decided I wanted to come back to Africa. There was a lot to do in Africa. Mm. I was enjoying consulting at the time. So I came back uh, to Africa, but I went to work at McKinsey in Johannesburg, which is what brought me to South Africa. I worked at McKinsey for about five years, and the reason I came to South Africa because that was the McKinsey office for Sub-Saharan Africa at the time. Mm -hmm. So I worked probably half my time on the rest of the continent and half the time in South Africa. Um, but after five years, I decided to leave that for various reasons. And um, this was in 2011, and I felt that the financial system was not quite right. Mm. Um, there was, it was in the news all the time. At the time, it was the time of the Greek debt crisis when it was, 
it was really becoming amplified and dominating all the headlines. Mm. The was that 2008 one? This was, so this is post 2008, this is 2011. Oh, okay. And so the price of gold in 2011 was a, went to a high of 1918, 1918 at the time. Mm. Uh, and then drop back down. And so there's a lot of stuff in, in, the, in the financial world, like the US government got downgraded for the first time, so it wasn't AAA rated, which is kind of unheard of. Mm. Like the US government was meant to be the standard of risk-free assets. And now the US government's kind of bonds and, uh, and paper, so to speak, uh, yeah. was, was, was downgraded to AA. And so I thought there's something not quite right in our financial system. I don't really understand it well enough. Mm -hmm. So let me try to understand it to see how I can contribute to its betterment. And one of the biggest things growing up being a Baha'i was service to humanity. Mm. Like whatever, my parents always told me, whatever you do, whatever it is, whether you're a baker or a banker or whatever it may be, mm. make sure that whatever you do is done in a spirit of service to your fellow brothers and sisters around the world, humanity. Mm -hmm. So I took that to heart and, I, and that, that philosophy is, is really at the core of everything I do right now. Because I didn't understand what was going on, I studied economics but more development economics. Mm. I thought let me try to get into the belly of the beast. So I started working at Rand Richard Bank mm -hmm. and I was fortunate enough to get onto a really fantastic program called the Class of Program. Um, and this is a program that the likes of Michael Yordan actually were on mm. and uh, Herman Bossman who was uh, who led Deutsche Bank for some time in South Africa, who's leading RMIH right now, um, and a few others. And um, effectively, it's a stringent interview process. Uh, the last interview is with the board of the company, of RMB, but once you get accepted, then it's a wonderful opportunity because they open the doors to the bank and they say, welcome, pretty much do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. right? uh, it's a time to learn, a time to kind of see what the bank's all about with the hopes of contributing to the bank once you have a little bit of a bird's eye view of what's going on in the bank overall. That is a very good point because you might think that just because you studied economics, then assumably people think that you know pretty much everything. Well, yeah, so I think, I think finance is so broad right. and it's so siloed. So generally, even in the bank, people know very, very uh, well, they know a lot and in detail about their particular area. So it's very specific. Very specific. But they have very little knowledge about what's going on just on the other side of what they're working on. Or, or let's say they're lending out money. They mm. have very little knowledge of, of how to raise money or you know, things like that. So, so um, it's a very siloed industry. And so I was able to spend time at the bank and spend time in, in global markets learning about derivatives and different types of trading. and. Yeah. Uh, on bonds and forex and options and things like that. And then I spent some time in group treasury to understand actually how does a bank work? Mm -hmm. Where does it get its money from? How does it create money? How does it decide what its funding model is? How does it decide what its capital should be beyond just the regulatory requirements? Mm -hmm. um, then spent time in investment banking, spent time in private equity. Um, so about four years I did uh, kind of a lot of different things, but then in about 2014, 2015, I started becoming very interested in crypto. Mm. Uh, I had heard about Bitcoin in 20, I think 12, and then in 2013 when the price started going very high, I thought, what's going on over here? Mm -hmm. And then it crashed and I felt vindicated and I thought I knew that stuff was a scam. <laughs> uh, I obviously didn't understand what it was. Yeah. And then I had a very good friend of mine who started a startup in the Bitcoin space in San Francisco. And I started talking to him and he told me how he was developing an API, mm. an app with an API into the Bitcoin blockchain. And I felt, gosh, Adam, uh, why are you doing this? This is beneath you. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a very interesting view as well. Yeah. So why are you spending your time on this stuff? Like, mm. you, know, you work in the bank. Well, he was, well, I was at the bank still and he was obviously doing a startup. He was mm. a good friend of mine and he also was a Baha'i. So he had the same philosophy of kind of, Mm -hmm. Sort of humanity. So anyway, he said, Farzad, I don't think you understand. So let me share a few things with you. Mm -hmm. So he told me a little bit about what a startup was doing, about the, the Bitcoin blockchain, about what, uh, what kind of his company was doing to help people integrate into uh, the Bitcoin blockchain and startups that were looking to get access without running their own nodes on the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm -hmm. So um, 
I started really looking into it. And my wife wasn't the happiest in South Africa at the time. Okay. So we were looking at other options. And she had actually pushed me to, to look more into this. Okay. And so I, I owe her a lot of credit. So what do you mean? Was she thinking, she, she knew about crypto as well? Or it was just... I didn't know about crypto, but I remember I, I was on a, call, a telephone call, a Skype call with, with, with my friend. And uh, she said, what is this blockchain stuff? And mm. I said, well, it's a new way of kind of having a distributed ledger. And it seems to, with the cryptocurrency space, you know, you can cross borders with payments much more efficiently and mm -hmm. quicker. And it requires less trust in institutions that have been betraying the trust of the public. And she said to me, when I started talking to her about all the positives about crypto, she says, isn't this what you've been looking for? Mm -hmm. She said, you came into finance to make a difference. It sounds like this is a technology that could well make a huge difference to humanity. Isn't this what you're looking for? Mm -hmm. And I thought, actually, she's right. And so I spent a lot more time reading up. Um, one of the first books I read was Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. Of course. <laughs> and uh, I used them a, a tremendous amount for the community. All right. So, um, uh, and then just started going deeper and deeper and learning more about it. And I started to talk to people within the bank about blockchain and cryptocurrency and asking them what we're doing at RMB and FNB in the first rank group. Mm. And then invariably the question that came back was what's blockchain? Because that wasn't a term that people knew at that time. And then they said, Bitcoin, no, that's drug money. We don't touch that stuff. Yeah. Right? So um, after several conversations, I was asked to see if I was interested in helping set up the uh, fintech uh, division, if you want to think about it. For RMB. For RMB. It's mm -hmm. called the Foundry. So with two colleagues, we, we started it up at the beginning of 2016. And since then, I, I said that I wanted to lead the blockchain and cryptocurrency work. Mm -hmm. And so we started then, we, we did some really interesting work. We, we had our, our tuck shop uh, at work on the Ethereum blockchain. So you could buy and sell chocolates and sweets and things like that. <laughs> and these are tokenized assets on, on the Ethereum blockchain. Mm -hmm. uh, that was within the bank. Uh, that was within the bank. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we were just kind of playing around and figuring it out. And then we uh, helped set up the South African Financial Blockchain Consortium. So I was the inaugural chairperson there, mm. where we brought 55 financial institutions together. We started with uh, three banks, uh, and then it started expanding into others, other institutions in the financial space. And then ultimately grew into about 55 financial institutions. It still exists today, although I, I relinquished my position when I left the bank. And um, it's really a forum right now for learning to see what the technology can do for the banking space. It's unfortunate, though, because I think many people in the banks in this space have their hands tied at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and understandably so, because it's a, a new space. The banks have big businesses in South Africa specifically. Um, they have licenses to keep and to maintain. Right. And so they're very risk averse when it comes to trying truly innovative things. Like all banks said they want to be innovative. But when right. it comes to truly innovative things, the question is, is this going beyond what's actually palatable for us as a bank? Mm -hmm. Are we going to get into trouble with this? And so we did a lot at the bank. Uh, I can't reveal everything we did at the bank for confidentiality reasons. But there were some big meetings that happened shortly before I left mm. that the outcome was we won't be proceeding with these initiatives. And so I, I thanked the bank and uh, left on good terms. But I thought that you know, if there's no appetite within the bank to do some of this stuff, then let me go and try myself outside. Right. The so uh, a few of my team members came with me and we co-founded Valor. Mm. And uh, we built it. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> impressive, man. It's coming from a different place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because most of the crypto exchanges or crypto companies, they come from, you know, a very Bitcoin background. Correct. You know? <laughs> yeah, they came. When I was at the bank, there were many, many blockchain leads around the world. When I say many, many, actually, that's, that's not true. There were a few because there weren't that many, but mm. uh, several blockchain leads that were in positions of blockchain leads around the world were leaving to start up their own things. Mm -hmm. I was really hopeful that we could do something from within the bank. I think there's a dichotomy in the crypto space that's kind of like us against the banks. Right. And the banks are the, the bad guys. Um, 
I think that's a false dichotomy. Okay. I, I don't think that's a healthy way of viewing the world. I think it's true that some of the banks are doing things that are uh, not good and are are guilty of you know the stuff that they're not meant to be uh, engaging in, like money laundering, etc. And I've seen you know billions of dollars of fines dished out to mm. banks around the world. But to paint such a broad picture of banking when there's so many people mm. in banking, so many different types of banks, um, and to paint them with the same brush that they're evil, I right. think does a disservice to to reality. So isn't that the same view of the banksters saying that hey, crypto is money for money laundering? Well, that's the thing, right? So mm. is is crypto used for for some illicit activities? Of course it is. But so is the banking system, so is cash, so is everything. Actually, ma- the majority of money laundering is through banks. Absolutely. Mm. Right. And that's factual. Right? It's the regulators and, and the banks themselves, etc., that are paying these fines, etc. So, so crypto definitely can be used for illicit activity, but this potential is tremendous. Mm-hmm. You know? so, um, so yeah, so that dichotomy is false. Right? And I think it's not helpful and it's not productive to start talking about certain group of people that is such a huge generalization mm. and what they're all about, right? You can talk about the banking industry for potentially, yeah? And I agree, and I think for instance in the banking industry that it's, it's too expensive in South Africa, for example. Mm. But to talk about people in banks and bankers, uh, that's not helpful. Right. So, so we rather like to look at things to say, what are we doing to improve things? But how can we help serve humanity? How can we help serve our customers? Mm. And we will work with whoever is willing to serve, whatever you call yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? So our crusade is against injustice. Our crusade is not against a group of people that happen to call themselves something that starts right. to be that... Some of them are good, some of them maybe are not so good, but the same thing can be said about people in crypto. Some of them are good, some of the people are not right. so good. So, uh, so yeah. That's going to be an interesting road, hey, because still you still have forces and sides in this thing where I think there is um, mental models in terms of people from this side look at this world in, in this way and the other, the other way as well. Yeah. Still, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of education to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe on both re- sides, re- by the way. Um, more like an education and re-education kind of thing, where maybe yeah, people should just educate themselves about what's, the, what's going on right now. Yeah, well, I think that's the point. When you say re-education, I think we need to, it's actually, I think it's also uneducation, mm. to uneducate, because I think people think they understand what our current financial system is all about. Mm. They think they understand today's money, and actually most people don't. You know, many people think that the bank, the money that we have is backed by gold, that's yeah, the yeah. central bank. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's unbelievable how many people think that, right? And that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. And so um, we need to, I think, uneducate, uh, that's not quite the right word, but re-educate, as you said, mm. um, not just about crypto, but about the current financial system. And um, yeah. That's a very good point. I was about to say, why do you think uh, the entire education system worldwide does not have really financial education at all. So from the primary school level or you know high school level, yeah. why isn't there some sort of you know financial education as, as just so that any every citizen should understand what actually the money they're using for is? Yeah, and, uh, like very few people understand that the commercial banks are the ones that create money, right? Right, and they expand the supply of money in the economy. Uh, central banks create physical cash and they exchange that for digital uh, when they're issuing it. They also can do quantitative easing, which is to buy uh, assets in the open market, whether it's securities or bonds or whatever it may be. Mm. But very few people understand that. And actually very few people in banking and in finance understand that. Right? And I was shocked mm. uh, in my history to see that some very senior people at central banks that I've engaged with didn't understand some of the basics about how money is created in the economy. Mm-hmm. That was very worrying to me when you saw such senior people that didn't understand some of the basics about the economics of our banking and financial system. 
So when you ask why isn't it, I think we just got a, we've got a big problem with education overall. It's not just about financial education, it's all types of education. I think right. the problems that we have across the world with racism and nationalism and all this kind of stuff mm. uh, and health issues, it's just from a lack of education. Right, overall. that is and a very so good point. Financial education is one of those things, but it's a very good point you bring up because money is something that people know intimately well. Exactly. Everybody knows how much money they have. Yeah. Right. I mean, everybody's at work right now. Everybody's Your whole life is around, around that. They're trying to get it to live a life. Mm. And they're dealing with it every single day. Yeah. But very few people sit back and ask themselves, what is this thing? Mm-hmm. Why does this piece of paper have value? Like, and it's actually interesting, uh, you know, running Valor, mm. where we are custodians of our customers' financial value. You see it every day that, you know, money is, for the most part, ones and zeros on servers yes. that the human eye doesn't see, except for when it's flashed up on your screen right. on a monitor on your phone. And there's a lot of comfort we derive from seeing, oh, yeah, that's or a thousand or a million or whatever it may be. Yeah. But we don't realize that there's so much trust in that system trust of the financial institutions that we're using, mm. trust in the fact that the monetary uh, means of exchange, like the RAND, will continue to exist, that the dollar will continue to exist, etc. But we know from history, these things change. Mm. But because we've been brought up and we're kind of used to it, it's been a couple of decades, the human mind doesn't think beyond that. Right. And we get used to the fact that, oh, the RAND is here, it was here yesterday, it was here last week, last year, last decade. People don't realize, for instance, that the RAND didn't exist in 1960. Yes. It came into existence in 1961. Um, and so they think it was gonna con- it's going to continue to exist. Complete fallacy. Mm. So the question is, what? That for sure, money is going to change. For sure, in the future, the RAND will not exist. For sure. Yeah. The dollar will not exist. For sure. I can't tell you what timelines are. Right. But I, like, the dollar being in existence in a thousand years, mm-hmm. unthinkable. Right? So if it's not in existence in a thousand years, and we can agree to that, well then do we say it's in existence in 500 years? In 100? In 50? In five years? In five months? In five days? Right. You know, where does it... In, in Zimbabwe, they have changed currencies so many times. Right. But you could say maybe it's a bad example because of whatever happened, but it happened. You know, it's a reality. It happened, but you know, I think there's a lot of arrogance, especially in certain what we call developed countries, that they look at countries like Zimbabwe and mm. Venezuela, and they say this could never happen to a country like us. But in the 1920s, it happened to Germany. Yes. Right? Um, it's a story of our life. Of our, of, our, of our lives and our ancestors, which is that money changes, money is created, money is destroyed, forms change from one to another, and that's often dr- driven by technology. Mm. So we are at the cusp with crypto of a technology that few people truly understand, that holds so much promise for serving the needs of humans across the world. And um, it's going to take a lot of education of not just the public, but the, edu- the, the regulators mm-hmm. and the legislators and the government officials and those that are in charge of our current financial system that I feel very comfortable with knowing it. Mm. But I think we're going to be up for some very tough times ahead. Yeah, for sure. I think there's going to be a lot of friction uh, between the old world and the new world. Another thing, why did, do you think people previously, you know, at RMB, you say you work at Deloitte as well. Deloitte Consulting in San Francisco. Yeah, why did these guys work with you? Why do you think they give you the chance to work there? Why did, why did they accept me into their companies? Mm. God knows. <laughs> 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 so I can tell you a little bit about my interview process at McKinsey. Mm-hmm. Um, it was here just down the road in Santon. And um, it was my final interview. Mm. And uh, the senior director said to me, why do you want to join McKinsey? And I said, well, I believe in serving humanity. And I think that uh, through consulting and through advising, we can hopefully make things more efficient, Mm. better advise people on how to improve things. And so he said, that's nonsense. He said, we're going to go and maybe do a project in Nigeria and we might advise them to fire most of you know their their, their workforce. How yeah. is that serving? 
So I said, well, hopefully you're firing some people to save many other people's jobs, mm. right? And uh, I said to him, if not, and if I do join and I do get accepted to McKinsey and I find that I'm not able to serve humanity through being at McKinsey, I assure you, you'll have a, my letter of resignation on, my, on, on your desk. Right. <laughs> and so he said, no, 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 I'm just giving you a hypothetical situation. Okay, that's fine. So um, I, th I think actually, if anybody's watching about interviews, I think just a, a little piece of advice is just be yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, never try to be someone that you're not, because that never works well in the long run. Right. And w what do you do at Valor when you're interviewing? So I always tell people at Valor that, that, that have come to interview at Valor that this is a, a two-way conversation. Mm, okay. That we're assessing you as an individual that wants to work here, but you should be assessing us as a company that you want to work for. Mm -hmm. So it's a conversation. So relax. It's not a. It's not going to be a grilling session. Like we need to be yourself, as I always say. Because yeah. let's rather find that out right now that there's not a match. Mm. If it's not a match, rather than in a few months or something like that, where it's just tense between us. So be yourself, and let's just figure out figure out whether this is a suitable match for both you and us. Right. So. Uh, we have a bunch of different, depending on the position at Banner, we'll have technical assessments, etc. But I'm just talking about the, the cultural fit, just yes. the discussion, just to see if we have a fit. It's, I think with any company, you need to make sure that every hire that you make, mm. be sure that that person will contribute to the culture in one way or another. Okay. So it might be a lot, it might be a little, but it will be something. So you need to make sure that when you're hiring, that you're actually hiring for the type of person and culture that you're trying to build within the company. So that very quickly, I think, morphs into the people, obviously, that you've hired and very little about what the CEO says. Right. right? It's about the people in the company themselves. And how do you fire? We haven't fired anybody. <laughs> nice. So you, um, so you say it we, takes two weeks for you to hire? It depends. It mm. really depends on, on the process. We've hired people very, very quickly. Right. Um, when I say we haven't fired anybody, we haven't. There are people that have parted, mm -hmm. but for um, for different reasons. Um, so, um, and generally contractors. Oh, okay. Because they've got a full time job elsewhere or whatever it may be. Yeah. But we, we haven't yet had a full time employee that has left. Okay. But in this business, in tech, that's quite long. You know, that you see. That's true. So we've you still get a lot of people. We take our time, so you should be, be uh, you know, take your time to hire people. Yeah, and um, hundred years from now, yeah, if someone wants to understand, if they're listening to this interview, yeah, how would you give them an overview of what the world is like today? In your words, how would you what explain today? Today. So hopefully they're not watching this interview; they've got better things to do. But <laughs> <laughs> in a hundred years. So, Gray, we are at a very interesting point mm. in humanity's history. We are living in a world of turmoil right now, mm. for the most part. There's a lot of beauty in our world, but there's a lot of turmoil. Yes. If you look at the injustices that we are used to and that we, are, we convince ourselves that are okay, I think in the future people look at us as a very primitive society. So as an example, Gray, you and me drove here mm. in a car this morning. And on our way, we probably passed several people that didn't have enough to eat, mm. that slept last night without a shelter over their heads, were probably very cold. And we just live our life and continue with it. And we don't take a step back to say, wow, our system as a society is living in a state where there are people in traumatic situations every single day. Mm. We have the financial resources if we wanted to, as a society, yes. to combat those issues. But we're living in a capitalistic system, which I think is very flawed. It's, capitalism has a, great, a lot of great things about it, but it has a lot of flaws about it. And um, so we're living in a stage where there's a lot of turmoil. And I, I think, to best put it, we're in the stage of humanity's adolescence. So we're at that stage where we're 
getting to maturity. And why I say that is if you look at the history and those people that have heard me speak before, have heard me say this before, which is we've gone from the family that used to feud mm. to tribes that used to feud to the city-state, that used to feud to the nation-state. And the nation-state really started about 400 years ago. Mm -hmm. And now we are at the cusp. We're trying to break out of this nation-state. All of us want it as a humanity, right? Yeah. We, we, there's a yearning for us to be one, whether you look at scientifically or spiritually or whatever it may be. Mm. And yet our systems continue to divide us, including our financial system. Yes. And they cause frictions and tensions, etc. And so we are at that stage where even with things like Brexit and what's going on in the United States with the nationalism and things like that, there are small factions and vested interests that like the way the world it is, the way it is because they're advantaged. Mm. And they're not seeing that actually there's a lot of injustice and disadvantages in the world for a lot for the majority of humanity, right? Yes. And so I think we're going to go through some turmoil to a stage where we realize we need to really, really review how our systems work in the world. Politically, mm -hmm. our political systems are failing us everywhere. Yeah. Religiously as well. If you look at religious institutions around the world, many people are falling away from that. Socially, um, the social fabric of our society, in many parts of it is falling apart. We're seeing a lot of social ills uh, taking place in, in our society. But at the same time of these things crumbling, there are positive forces of construction and constructive forces. Mm. So, you know, things like crypto are bringing people closer together. Communication technology is bringing people together. Costs are coming down to allow people to communicate from all parts of the world. We're becoming a global village, which is a very beautiful thing to see. Mm -hmm. There are those people that want to stop it from happening because they benefit from the status quo. There's nothing they can do to stop this. This is this process of unity is unstoppable, and so uh, it's really great to be part of that constructive process. Hopefully, yes. Start help humanity become one and to recognize its own oneness. Interesting. You should write a book, man. <laughs> <laughs> there are many books that have been written. No, you know, like. Ray, I mentioned the, the Baha'i faith earlier, which is kind of the, the crux of what I believe in because it appeals to both my, my, yeah. my mind and my heart. And, you know, a very beautiful quote is, that it comes from those writings that the, the earth is about one country and mankind its citizens. Mm -hmm. And it actually talks about the ills that we see today are because we're not recognizing our unity. You know, like, for instance, racism. Mm. People say... Or, 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 or the, you know, the elimination of the rich, the, the extremes of wealth and poverty. Mm. Like, I don't think that the extremes of wealth and poverty are sustainable right now. So, uh, people, people say, let's solve these issues. Let's solve racism. Mm. Let's solve uh, our border disputes. Then we can become unified. Right. But actually, we need to flip it around. Let's recognize our unity first. And through that recognition, we'll be able to solve our problems. Mm -hmm. Right. So we need, there's a lot of education coming to our earlier point about who, who are you, Greg? Who am I? Are you Malawian? Mm. Am I American or South African or Kenyan or Iranian? What do these things mean? They're based on geographic borders that have just come into existence in the last They're all made years, up. relatively speaking. They're made up. Yeah. They're in our mind. And why are we letting these things divide us? So we need to recognize our unity. And that's why I'm very excited about the work we're doing, which is to try to bring unification to the financial system globally. And so if you say education, what, because personally, look, I, I'm very pessimistic about the world right now. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear that. <laughs> I feel like we are at a stagnation point yeah. technologically. Yeah. And this is partly because uh, politics has taken a lead too much in almost everything. Yeah. So. There's too much regulation. Like you said, there's a lot of people who is trying to control you know, where the world goes and how things should be in th in term, in, instead of letting it be. Mm. And that has caused, I was asking my friend uh, last night actually, that what have you seen that's very impressive in the last five years? Yeah. Apart from Uber, I would say. Yeah. Nothing else. It feels like even Silicon Valley is dying. Interesting. And I was very optimistic about Africa. Yeah. 
and doing even small business within Africa, it's kind of now putting me to a position that, look, you might, you would care, but there's very little people that actually care about these mm. things, especially people in power. You, I learned recently more that, you know, the people in power really aren't mostly there to change things right. as much as people from the outside are, you know. So now um, I, I agree when you say the world is towards a two more kind of state, you know. Yeah. But then the education aspect, which is big, yeah. is also that, okay, how would that education look like without making it a kind of a, pol a political participation? Because right now it's almost something like that, whereas it's, a, it's, it's an endorsement deal other than you being educated, but I wonder what the real education would look like, where man, one man has to identify, like you say, learn who they are first on their own. It's a really beautiful and, and actually appropriate kind of view that you've shared, not beautiful is the wrong word, but accurate view mm. that you've shared, which is there's a lot of confusion in the world as well, and a lot of pessimism, mm. as, you, as you said. Uh, and Change is not going to come from our political leaders. Yeah. Our political system is broken. Our financial system is broken. Right? You, we, we just need to read a little bit about our history. Mm -hmm. Like, the people that governed uh, society in the past were not politicians. They were the clergy. They were the religious people in yes. the recent past. You know, like the recent past in the past few hundred years. And in many respects, those bodies became corrupted and they stopped serving the people. Mm. And you can see that humanity in, in large part, uh, from a governance perspective, has moved away from religion as a governing institution of how the affairs of the world are run. Yes. It's still very influential, don't get me wrong, and, and most people are still religious and have spiritual beliefs. And I, I'm one of those people, so I'm mm. not bashing religion or or spirituality at all. But what I'm saying is when those people that were in power started to betray the trust and their vested interests started to take things for themselves rather than to serve the people, over time, power left their grip. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing right now is politicians in the last few years in the political realm has really been taking a lot more predominance in or dominance in our governance structures globally. But we're seeing more and more around the world, wherever you look, that those institutions of governance are becoming more and more corrupted. Yeah. They don't serve humanity. If you look at the politicians today, pretty much any country you look at, ask yourself, do you really think that they're there to serve people? No. Or are they there to achieve their own ends of their own goals of becoming the most political, politically powerful person or whatever it may be? Okay, and of course, I'm sure there are some people that are wanting to do that. And I said, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush. Yeah. But overall, as a political system, it's failing humanity. Right? So um, we will be moving away from this system, for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to be an easy process. There will be turmoil. We've already started seeing some of that turmoil in North Africa with this Arab Spring and things like that. We're seeing social, political turmoil around the world. But that's why I'm saying it's a time of adolescence, Gray, from my view. Mm. And, you know, the, I mean, some of these things are cliches, but you know, the darkest time is just before the dawn, right? Right. And, um, and also, when you think about the birth of a new baby, the pain and turmoil that is has to be gone through to give birth to something new, new yeah. is there. And so we're seeing a lot of that turmoil. Um, so my view is that we are going to be figuring out a new way of governance. I don't think it's going to be a smooth transition globally. Mm. And we're seeing the rumblings of that right now. But ultimately, I think humanity may have to go through some very tough times and that this turmoil that we're seeing may actually have to get worse before it gets better. Yes. Because we're still just plodding along. I mean, even if you look at the financial system, 2008 came and went. Yeah. Nobody really changed anything. For sure. Regulations became a little bit more strict, but guess what? People started innovating a little bit more around them. We still have, have issues. Our banking system, I think, is 
is still uh, there's still to be a lot to be wished for. Yeah, <laughs> it's still going to get worse, I think, to your point. But I have a lot of faith in humanity that we will get through it, despite some of the difficulties that we're going to see in the years ahead. Right. So, from on the economic side of things, yeah. what would I mean? I'm very interested in economics for a very long time. I read about it, but for you who has dedicated a lot of years into it. What would a society of real money, not debt-based kind of fiat currency, look like? Let me share this. I think that we have a lot to learn mm. as a society. That's the traditional financial system and the crypto financial, the crypto financial system. Mm. And what I mean by that is the people that say crypto is the answer and it's the only answer, and we already have the answer, and the old world order must fail and crypto must prevail today, right now. It's dangerous as well. That's very dangerous. Yeah. We don't have the answer as crypto right now, right? I can tell you right now that the crypto sphere is not ready to provide a financial system for the whole world. Surely, We, I totally agree with technically that. Technically, it's not possible right now, right? And I, I like to give the the example of Venezuelans, and if the entire Bitcoin network was shut down and not used, not shut down, but not used by the rest of the world, but only Venezuelans, which is just one country in the world. Mm. That given the population of the Venezuelans, that each adult there could only submit one financial transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain once every two months. Wow. Now, when you think about that, that's not possible. Like, you can't do one financial transaction every two months. That's mm. not enough capacity. Now, there is a lot that's being done to improve that. Mm. Uh, a lot of people are proponents, proponents of the Lightning Network and, and other things and other cryptocurrencies and other blockchains. Yes. But my point is today, right now, As people in the crypto space, we need to have the humility to know mm. that we don't have the full answers. And also, people that talk about sound money, about Bitcoin just being finite supply. Mm. Well, you know, gold was also in finite supply, and it was not a perfect system either, right? There were a lot of benefits to having a gold standard for sure. I There see. I, I think it has a lot of bad because if it's a resource like that. Anybody who naturally has it is, is at risk already. That there's an aspect of it. Say, say that. Say more. What do you mean by that? Uh, so if you if gold becomes the standard currency, yeah. uh, countries that actually have gold yeah. are at risk of war and all these kind of things. Because of the inequalities, you're saying? Yeah, because you know now you kind of you you already have you already wealthy by j just the mergers. Or you have too much gold. Yeah. You yeah. know. So for anybody to extract it. Then you know you start to see. I mean, we have seen it becomes a kind of natural resources. Okay, I hear you. Uh, you know what I will say, Gray, in answer to this and your previous question is, many people think that it's just a financial system that will solve our financial problems. Mm. That's not true. We live in a cohesive world, right? Where our monetary standard is not going to all of a sudden change our social. Issues. Yes. Right. And a lot of people say, "Oh, we need crypto to have financial inclusion." Crypto by itself is not going to include people any more than the traditional financial system does. Right. Mm. Like people that are very poor don't have enough money to buy crypto. For sure. So how is it going to include them if they don't have enough money? And actually, there's something called the Gini coefficient, mm. which is the inequality of wealth in a particular nation or in an economy, etc. The Gini coefficient in crypto is ridiculously yeah, high. Yeah. Right? So the inequality in crypto is much more than the inequality in, in the traditional world. Right? For sure. So I think we need to, again, have the humility to say, I personally think crypto has a lot to offer. Um, but what that future monetary state looks like, Nobody knows. We don't know. We can take it incrementally, and we can try to build it slowly. Mm. Uh, and we have guiding principles of what it should look like. I believe that it should be a financial system that doesn't take into consideration national borders. Mm -hmm. When I send an email, I don't worry what country you're in. I just send that email. When I send value, I shouldn't worry about cross-border payments. I should just pay you. Mm. It should be simple. It should be seamless. It's not there yet. So we need a system that promotes that. Right? Crypto is the closest thing that I know of that comes to that, right? mm. while also safeguarding some of the interests of people able to having this, the financial sovereignty to actually hold their own money without having to trust a third party that they don't necessarily trust. Mm -hmm. 
So there are a lot of elements that I think would apply, but um, gosh, we could even start going into taxation and mm. issues with the, the, the taxation at the national level rather than international level and, and, and the difficulties and the challenges that come up with the nation state system as far as the, the allocation of resources globally. And there's a lot to talk about in here, but the main point is we need to stay humble mm. and maintain the focus of serving humanity. And then hopefully we'll get there. It's interesting. It's like almost we build something and we're trying to break it again. <laughs> because, you know, from what you say, from the national control system is also like, okay, we had these borders to make things easier for us. But now if we have to introduce kind of a global perspective of the world or value, then what do we do with this now? Yeah. <laughs> Taxation comes in. Yeah. But then what would the sound money economy look like where you just can't print money? So what I will share is this, that I think that when you look at the issuance algorithms of money, mm. we have gone, gone from natural issuance algorithms, i.e. gold and animal skins and shells and salt. Yeah. And all of these things have been issued by nature, so to speak. And then humans have kind of mined it or whatever it may be, uh, gathered it or whatever it may be that, uh, that accumulated it. But typically these were naturally occurring substances that formed our money supply. Then we went to paper that was backed by gold, for example. Then we just went to paper and we went to digital. Mm. And we moved from effectively natural issuance algorithms of money to human committee-based issuance algorithms of money, mm. where a central bank committee of seven people, for example, will determine how much money there should be based on the regulations that they give the banks, based on quantitative easing, based on, a, on the reserve ratios, a whole bunch of stuff, right? But basically this is manipulated, mm. I'm not saying that in a negative way, but it's, it is manipulated by individuals that are trying, I think in many cases, are trying to do their best with the economy, but they don't have all the tools at their disposal. So we've gone from issuance algorithms that are natural to issuance algorithms that are uh, human-based, then to Bitcoin, which is, I believe, an issuance algorithm that is codified, but is unintelligent. Mm. It's a dumb issuance algorithm. Yes. There's 21 million that's ever going to be issued. That's all you only know. Right. That's, and we know, basically, based on the hash rate and, and the changing every couple of weeks of how, how much is going to be mined and what the difficulty level is in the Bitcoin network. Mm. We know on average that there's going to be new coins minted every 10 minutes. And we know about the halving. And we kind of have this, this kind of issuance algorithm that's great. It's codified and mm. nobody can manipulate, manipulate it. it. But it's unintelligent. Yeah, of course. Right? So I think that the next stage is going to be intelligence-based, codified, issuance algorithms that take inputs from the real world, right. uh, social principles, etc. As an example. That would be, that would be interesting. Yeah, as an example. Complex, like, yeah. You could think about, you know, a lot of people are talking about UBI, uh, universal basic income, uh, basic income etc. And one could say, okay, every human being that's born will get allocated some, some money. But then you need to think that what are the incentives there? And if, if I'm poor, let's say, and I want money, it doesn't cost me too much to have a baby, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the moment. And I can have a baby, get the money. I might not take care of my baby. Yeah. And that's probably making things worse for society. Of course. Right? So one could say, well, actually, to disincentivize that, we'll say, you know, anybody that gets the age of 18, gets allocated X amount of uh, money, money yeah. right? So then people aren't going to go for short-term reasons, have children mm -hmm. to collect in 18 years, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but again, that, that also probably has its own issues. It does, right? yeah. So I'm not, I'm not saying that's the answer, but what I'm saying is I think social principles of justice will start to combine with our financial system to create a world that is more beautiful and sustainable where we realize that our own benefit is in the benefit of the whole. Yes. Right? And I think there's a lot of education there again to say, like right now we're just looking at ourselves, like forget you, mm. I'm going to try to get as much money 
if you're starving or you don't have a home, etc. Our current system says, don't worry about you. Mm. Let me just take care of me and not just take care of me, but let me show off how much I have been able to take care of myself by how big my bank account is. And as a society, we publish these things and mm. say, the top 10 hundred richest people <laughs> in the world are X, Y, and Z, and people look up to them in, in awe. That's very primitive. Very, very primitive. Like, we should be asking, what have these people done to serve humanity? How have they got that wealth? Is it such a good thing that you've got so much wealth and you're keeping it to yourself where you could actually be helping some of the social ills in society? You need to start taking the conversation a little bit further. That's than true. Just getting to the top 10 quick richest list and then looking up there. Every day we're getting closer to our death. Mm-hmm. We're not taking any of that stuff with us. That's true. But physical wealth, every single day, we're one step closer to leaving it behind. And like you said, from the financial perspective, we have the resources to actually eliminate some of the primitive problems that we have, you know, like yeah. just feed everyone. Yeah. You know, it's like that shouldn't, in an in a ideal world, that shouldn't have been uh, even a, a debate, right? That, you it's know, not easy, mm. but we do have the resources to do it. It would take a lot of sacrifice from certain quarters of our, of our society. Mm-hmm. It would take a lot of maturity. But I think there are two ways to get there, as I said. Number one is an orderly way, which is, takes maturity and sacrifice, etc. Or in a disorderly way, where we're going to be faced with a lot of social problems, and then we realize just this can't continue. Yes. Uh, and, and that things will be forced to change. Fantastic. Your faith, the Baha'i faith, can yeah. you just share a little bit more on that? What is it? Yeah. Is, it is it a Jewish-based um, concept? I mean, oh, yeah. uh, Israel-based concept? or? So it's, it's, its headquarters are in Israel right mm. now, but uh, the, the basics of the Baha'i faith are the, the author of the Baha'i revelation, an individual called Baha'u'llah, which means the glory of God. Mm. Um, he, he basically lived in the 1800s, and his message was that of unity. And some very, very beautiful messages of he talked about the harmony between science and religion, mm. and that if there is truth, then however you look at truth should stand the test of whatever the litmus test that you're using is, whether it's religion or science or whatever it may be. Mm. So he really talked about the unification of the human race. He talked about uh, the oneness of humanity. And it's a monotheistic religion, so we believe that there is one unknowable essence. We happen to call it God. It's beyond our comprehension. Mm. But really, he talked that he said that religion is actually one, and that if religion is a cause of disunity, it's better to get rid of religion. Mm. But that religion is should promote the best interests of humanity, and that true religion does do that. Yes. But religion has become perverted in many ways, and people have started to take it for their own good, and they've started to change it and manipulate it. And so when that happens, get rid of religion. But religion is, in its purest essence, can be a, a force for a very, very positive change. Um, where, in what, what you, was your family religious background before you get into this? So my family's religious background, it's funny that you said that it was the Jewish background, mm-hmm. actually. Um, okay. Um, all, all sides were Jewish, Iranian Jews. Iranian Jews, yeah, I know those, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah this is a very interesting subject of religion. I I got confused with it when I was young. So I read like you know religious texts of uh, Christianity and Islam, a lot of other stuff, and then I ended up just becoming agnostic and yeah. I become numb to everything. Do I, do I understand? Mm-hmm. I think that I think there's a lot out there that makes you question a lot of things. That's what I would always say to everybody: if you're religious, mm. make sure that you've come to that conclusion through your own mind mm-hmm. and own faith. And you're not doing it because of social pressures or familial pressures. Yes. Because that's a recipe for a disaster, right? So investigate yourself. Ask questions. If you ever get a response of someone saying, stop asking questions, just have faith, that's a sure sign it's time to run in the run in the Yeah, so that, that, those exact words are what made me to actually look more into it because my parents were like, they're a Christian. You can't ask questions, you can't question God or, you know. But then I have respect for people who um, got into a certain religious faith based on what they found out and, you know, their own knowledge and research. Because mostly when somebody says, I'm Jewish, I'm always assuming that, okay, your family is Jewish or Christian, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, 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 like 
my teenage years were spent, my later teenage years were spent questioning a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, no, uh, this religious thing doesn't seem to be serving many people. Mm-hmm. So I started to read a lot, lots of different uh, writings from different religions. And then uh, when I read a lot of the Baha'i writings, in the Baha'i writings, there are over a hundred volumes of books mm-hmm. written by the authors of the Baha'i Revelation, the, the central figures of the Baha'i faith. And from all sorts of topics, from economics to agriculture to consultation to governance, mm. um, it is the, the richest set of writings I've ever encountered in my life. Okay, wow. So it's leave, around, leave, leave aside the mystical stuff that a lot of people say, oh, the spirit. But the social solutions it has to humanity's ills, I have not seen anything that comes anywhere close to it. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm a Baha'i. Uh, ultimately, I'm a seeker of truth. So if I ever find something better, then it's my duty to follow that or to right. dedicate my life to that. But um, as a Baha'i, I think the Baha'i faith provides solutions to a lot of the problems that humanity is facing right now and that many people are looking for those solutions. Uh, how, how does it fit in in a family structure? You know, it's different for me that it's just me. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. now when you get married and you have kids, yeah. uh, how do you make sure that you don't directly impose your views on them. Sure. And then one, of, one of the central principles of the Baha'i faith is the individual and independent investigation of truth. Okay. So it says explicitly, if you become a Baha'i because you are, your parents are Baha'is, it's not acceptable. Oh, wow. Yeah. You need to look into it yourself. It's a very logical... Yeah, if it makes sense for you, embrace it. If it mm. doesn't, reject it. Right, and, and I think we need to do that in all facets of life, including mm. crypto and religion and politics and uh, any other type of kind of facet of life. So, do you vote? I do vote. Are you talking about within the political? No, 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 outside system. So, I do vote. Um, uh, not always, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I can vote as Baha'i. And uh, yeah, I, what I meant to say is now, like, how do you base your? How do you make your uh, your voting? decision so it's interesting that you bring this up um, so in the political system I just talk about uh, I, I just vote according to my heart I actually don't talk about it with other people I don't mm. I think the way we approach voting in politics is the wrong way in, in the Baha'i faith there actually is an election process as well there's no clergy in the Baha'i faith so there's no priests or clergy or anything like that mm-hmm. but yet there is an administrative order in the Baha'i faith and there's elections in the Baha'i faith, but the elections are so different to the way that it's done here. So in the Baha'i faith, there's no electioneering or campaigning. If anybody asks to be voted for, you know sure well, don't vote for that person. So you see, that's exactly why I don't vote. Yeah. Of like, why do you have to campaign? Yeah, yeah, you exactly. See? Campaigning, I think, is a flawed system. It is very flawed. Because fraud, actually fraud, yeah. all we're doing is getting the megalomaniacs and the egotistical guys into the political realm to say, I am the best. Yeah. Vote for me. There's very humility in our political team. And you, you, have a, you have a lot of incentive to lie, you know, because I mean, what are you going to do? You don't have to prove anything. There's you a, voted based on, on a narrative. Happens, unfortunately. So, yeah. so in the Baha'i election process, you can vote for whoever you want to vote for. Mm. You can talk about what the qualities you're looking for. But uh, in the Baha'i system, you're not allowed to even talk about who you're going to vote for. Right. So when I vote, my wife doesn't even know who I'm voting for. I don't know right. who my wife is voting for. Because we each individually need to apply our minds and think, who's the best person to vote for? Mm-hmm. Or best people, because we vote for councils, uh, for assemblies. And so when they're voted for, uh, remember, there's no campaigning. No one asked to be vo- uh, elected. And so therefore, there's no lobbying or constituents either. Yes. Because these people never asked to be elected. And so they're actually in, in a position of service. Uh, or in a position of authority, so to speak, to serve, not for power. Yes. And that's where we've got it wrong in society. People in power today are there for the power, right. not for the service. Yeah, I always ask myself, like, how did we get to the point where, you know, the system is the way it is now, that, you know, we give too much power to certain people yeah. to the point that we can't even take it away. You know, it's, and, and it's, it's very fraud. It's very corruptible. Yeah. Right now. Our, our system is, is lamentably defective right now. And to the point that one thing that buzzed me a lot is, is that you have the prison system in every system that we develop now. 
And the people that commit the most crime yeah. don't actually, the law does not apply That's to true. them. White collar workers, etc., and people that can get Yeah, you know, it's like when you, when, you, when you meet the highest crime, you don't actually get any penalty. <laughs> it's we're, weird. We're living in a world that's not just, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the problem. So I, I don't think we'll be able to make progress with having sustainable peace in our society yes. until we start putting in systems that uh, require and promote more justice in our society. Yes. So um, hopefully we'll get there. I, I don't know if we'll get there in my lifetime. I don't think yeah, 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 more likely not. But toughly my children or their children, whatever it is. But the point is we need to start. Mm-hmm. If we do care about our progeny and our children, etc., it's, uh, yes. it's, uh, it's the right thing to do to try to just create a more just society. Mm. That's what I'm hoping that my life will be, which is just to help contribute a little bit to the advancement of human supply. So when you're gone, what did you want to be remembered for? Serving my brothers and sisters. Mm. That's all. Okay. Service. Yeah. Fantastic. I think that's a very good point to end it. For those uh, who haven't signed up on Valor, the signs are, you can already see the links are in the descriptions as well. And then uh, what are the benefits if they use my link to sign up? So they get immediately a 10% uh, discount. On fees. On fees. You get some uh, benefits as well. Right. Uh, but they can do even better than the 10% is that if they refer people themselves then they get a 15% discount on their fees Yeah. and if they refer two or more people they get a 10% commission on those that they uh, refer. Mm. So it's a, it's a pretty we didn't talk much about Valor but Gray, we've already given out over 300,000 Rand in our first six weeks of trading. Right. It's not a promotion, this is part of our business model. Yes. So if you're not on Valor get on Valor, start earning Tell people about it, and uh, as you can see, it's the largest selection of cryptocurrencies in the country uh, at the lowest fees of of actually any platform in South Africa. And cumulatively, we have the lowest fees of any spot exchange in the world. Okay. Because we pay people 0.1% yeah, as a yeah. maker, right? We charge them 0.2% as a taker. So if you put those, we net 0.1%, and I believe that's the lowest fees in the world. So uh, join us. Fantastic. Actually, one, one thing before I forget was, so you're doing biz, this business yeah. in faith that you, you believe, in a belief that you think Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies will continue to exist. Uh, how did you reach to that conclusion? So I, 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 we're crypto agnostic. Mm. So I personally think that uh, Bitcoin has a bright future. Mm. But the reason why we have so many cryptocurrencies is because we think the market will decide. Right. Ultimately, those cryptocurrencies will become much uh, Will prevail but why we believe in crypto is because it's the best technology that I've been able to find that allows the financial system to progress from where we are and reduces the friction in humanity's financial relationships yes right so the fact that it's digital the fact that it has so many different permutations where you can hold your own crypto you can have a custodian for that crypto whatever it may be the fact that it goes across borders like they don't exist, the fact that it recognizes the oneness of humanity, we don't have a financial system that has that right now. So until I find something better, we're focusing on this. Right. Yeah, yeah that's a very good answer. <laughs> like you say, that you know, you think that it has the potential to solve some of those problems. Absolutely, because you know, money that's underpinned by cryptography. Yeah. We haven't even begun to see the use cases of that. That's very true. You know, the programmability of money, the codification of money. Mm. Uh, how it can combat corruption, how it can uh, combat fraud, how it can create more transparency in the financial affairs of humanity, how it can improve auditability. There are so many things Mm -hmm. that it does, um, and there's so many pros. So we need to just get through this fallacious thinking that that it's just about illicit activity and actually start looking at what its benefits are for society. Fantastic. I think we can end it there. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Greg. Always a pleasure, man. Awesome. Thank you. Sweet. Hello once again, and that was the end of our conversation. And just before you go, just want to communicate a few things with you uh, quickly. If you have 
enjoyed any of the podcast or this specific podcast episode, I would appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family through your social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., etc., as well as write me a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcast app. That would be fantastic. It helps me flourish and sustain this podcast as well. Uh, we also on other platforms like SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher Radio, um, and all other major podcast platforms. So whichever way you're listening to it, I would appreciate it if you leave me a review. You can also subscribe to the Grey Podcast through my website, greyjabesi.com, G-R-E-Y-J-A-B-E-S-I.com. There you also find some of the blogs that I'm writing sometimes and you get notified as soon as the new episode has been published. Until next time, enjoy and be productive.